G'day there, Tom Switzer here, and thanks so much for tuning in. It's always great to have your company on Between the Lines. Hope you're having a great day. Now, later in the program, did you know that despite the lack of media coverage, there's been an important date on the political calendar, 75 years since the founding of the Liberal Party. Stay tuned. But first, on the weekend, this happened. Last night, the United States brought the world's number one terrorist leader to justice, Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi is dead. He was the founder and leader of ISIS, the most ruthless and violent terror organization anywhere in the world. He died after running into a dead-end tunnel, whimpering and crying and screaming all the way. As our dogs chased him down, he ignited his vest, killing himself. His body was mutilated by the blast, but test results gave certain, immediate, and totally positive identification. It was him. Now, the death of Baghdadi comes about five years since his Sunni jihadist movement self-declared a caliphate across parts of Syria and Iraq that, at its peak, was as large as England. Remember that? Who can forget the widespread barbarism? The video recorded beheadings, the mass executions, the enslavement and raping of women, So how significant is Baghdadi's death? Now, before you answer that, let's put all this in some context. Remember the death of the infamous Jordanian thug known as Abdu Masab al-Zarqawi in 2006? Now Zarqawi has met his end, and this violent man will never murder again. And yet, contrary to President Bush, Zarqawi's Sunni insurgency continued to murder and cause mayhem across Iraq and Syria. Remember the death of al-Qaeda head Osama bin Laden in 2011. Tonight, I can report to the American people and to the world that the United States has conducted an operation that killed Osama bin Laden, the leader of al-Qaeda. And yet bin Laden's death hardly stopped the resurgence of the Sunni jihadists known as Islamic State on President Obama's watch. Moreover, and this is the really important question, Can we really defeat the Sunni jihadists if Baghdad and Damascus, now remember, these are Iranian-backed, Shia-aligned regimes in Iraq and Syria, can we really defeat the Sunni jihadists if these regimes continue to marginalise and discriminate against the Sunnis? Jessica Stern is a research professor of Boston University's Pardee School of Global Studies. She's co-author of ISIS, The State of Terror, Jessica, welcome to ABC Radio. Thank you for having me. Now, Baghdadi not only ran Islamic State inside Iraq and Syria, but ISIS became synonymous with global terror. So the question here is, to what extent does his death lessen the threat from ISIS and the ideology it represents? Well, well, I I think it is important. It's not going to defeat the ideology to defeat the man, and it's not even going to defeat that one group to kill that one leader. But it is important because Baghdadi, who declared himself the caliph, he's a descendant of the prophet. Uh, He had the right pedigree for the position he grabbed in the sense that he was a a scholar of Islam um, and and a descendant of the, the prophet Muhammad and created this a terrorist group that eventually became a a proto-state and a military and a 
very, very organized, very large criminal organization. He had 8 million people in the territory he controlled. He made himself vulnerable by creating a proto-state. And perhaps that's why al-Qaeda didn't attempt to establish the caliphate as quickly as Baghdadi did. Well, you've said in the New York Um, Times this week that Baghdadi was more evil than Osama bin Laden. How so? Yes, I I do believe that. He was incredibly brutal. He he followed in the footsteps of Zarqawi, uh, his predecessor, the leader of al-Qaeda in Iraq, who also was very brutal and beheaded his, quote, enemies. But Baghdadi beheaded mostly Muslims, of course, but that was a big part of his modus operandi, beheading people and filming the beheading, burning a Jordanian pilot alive, enslaving mostly Yazidi, but not only Yazidi women, turning them into sexual slaves. He was just an incredibly cruel man. I mean, almost inhumanly cruel. Now, in the Washington Post in 2015, you warned, quote, it's going to take a great deal of ingenuity even to contain the Islamic State, let alone defeat it. So how do you account for the dramatic success of the coalition to defeat Islamic State? A great deal of ingenuity. Um, And it's it's, uh, been quite a few years, I think uh, about four years. Although, Um, mind you, in your book, you quote King Abdullah of Jordan, who says the battle with ISIS will be a generational fight. It's only been four years. (laughs) Okay, well, (laughs) I I think, you know, some people were clearly hoping that we were going to be able to defeat the organization very, very quickly. That didn't happen, and we still haven't defeated it. We we took out the leader. Actually, he committed suicide, obviously, and under tremendous threat. But the caliphate has been defeated, and uh, the caliphate absolutely has been defeated. But but this is not just a physical organization; it's also a virtual organization. It's not just the physical organization in Iraq and Syria. It also has a number of so-called provinces or, or wilayat. So, yes, the, the caliphate, the territory, uh, it is no longer held by ISIS, the territory the size of Britain um, that you mentioned. Yeah, well, let's talk uh, about those provinces because ISIS has morphed from a caliphate in, what, 2014 to 2016, back to an insurgency in Syria and Iraq. Can Baghdadi's death mean that the momentum continues into more splintering of the movement around the world. Yes, I think it probably will continue splintering. I mean, one of the things, you know, I've been working on on terrorism for a long time, and one of the things that I've seen over many, many years is that jihadi groups tend to splinter and they merge and they rename themselves and then they go, they join with their former enemies and then they they defeat their their competitors and uh, it's just a non-stop movement of this kind and even if we were to fully defeat ISIS and we're nowhere near that it doesn't mean we've defeated the jihadi movement now you um have written i think with your colleague uh, JM Berger in your book quote you are significantly more likely to die in a car accident especially if you fail to wear a seatbelt than to be attacked by ISIS. (laughs) Now, that was in 2015. Does that mean that we've exaggerated the threat that these Islamic state jihadists pose to the broader Western world? 
You know, I, I think that the whole point of terrorism is to terrorize people. ISIS posed a, a very significant threat in Iraq and Syria. And there are still estimates between 10,000 and 15,000 fighters in the region. So we absolutely have not defeated them. Um, but in general, the threat to Westerners is rather small, quite insignificant, in fact. Jessica Stern is a research professor at Boston University who literally wrote the book on ISIS. It's called ISIS, The State of Terror. Uh, Jessica, in the New York Times this week, you wrote that many of the risk factors for the rise of ISIS still remain. How so? Well, we, we know that jihadi groups, especially a jihadi insurgency of the kind that ISIS presented, really thrives in illiberal democracy where there's an electoral democracy but no protection of minorities, in this case uh, Sunnis or minimal protection, um, sectarian tensions, civil war, unemployed young men or underemployed young men. Those are some of the risk factors that that have been identified. And unfortunately, there are a number of countries in the region that are suffering sectarian tensions or civil war. And Syria, of course, is a major one. Iraq is beginning to heal, but there still are sectarian tensions. Afghanistan would be another place where ISIS has set up shop, Nigeria, uh, Yemen, so uh, terrorist groups really exploit that kind of situation. Oh, indeed. And I think, and as I mentioned in my introduction, uh, this is really the crux of the matter. I mean, can we really defeat the Sunni jihadists so long as Baghdad and Damascus, as I said, these are Iranian-backed Shia-aligned regimes in Iraq and Syria, they seem more interested in either destroying Sunni towns, as Assad's done, or subjugating their rebellious Sunni populations rather than reconciling differences. So to the extent that that continues, doesn't that make it harder to defeat these Sunni jihadists to clearly exploit these Sunni grievances? They definitely exploit Sunni grievances. And yes, I have to agree that this is a situation that it's not resolved. I mean, we thought we had defeated al-Qaeda in Iraq after President Bush's surge. Uh, but it, the, so the, the 2006, 2007, yep. They came back, you know, changing the name. For a while there, it was called the Islamic State of Iraq. And they changed their name a few times and split with competition between leaders. This is what we often see. But basically, this is, this is the group that we thought we defeated with the surge. And because those sectarian tensions, the Sunni disenfranchisement, was still so strong, the group was able to exploit that. You know, it's it's a very serious issue. Well, to, to, to prevent their, their re-emergence, if you like, um, surely the governments in Syria and in Iraq have to address the kind of Suvi grievances that have been evident since the downfall of Saddam. Um, you know, how, how, how do they go about reintegrating these displaced Sunnis back into their local communities, getting jobs, basic services. Because America has shown time and again in the post-9-11 era, Jessica, that it's not really capable of doing this. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> we are not very good at it. I don't know that any nation from Well, the Brits weren't outside. very good either, were they? <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, I do think that 
nations sometimes are motivated to do the right thing, to actually help people, to try to reduce conflict, to try to reduce humanitarian crises of the kind we see in, in Syria. And I think we really do try to do that, but it doesn't seem that we're very good at it. We often get dragged into war fighting. Yeah. Well, given and, these age-old sectarian tensions and Washington's inability to solve these problems... And with Baghdadi's death, does that mean then that President Trump's decision to move the U.S. troops out of northern Syria, is that now more than justified? Well, I think it's the way it was done so precipitously that is deeply upsetting American military personnel who were working with Kurdish fighters. It's not clear that that we're making the situation better over the long term, but we I believe we we clearly were working together well with with the Kurds and to suddenly abandon our allies seems to me to have made the situation at least for the immediate term significantly worse especially for the Kurds. Mm. To be continued, Jessica, thanks so much for being on ABC Radio. Thanks for having me. Jessica Stern is Professor of Global Studies at Boston University and co-author of ISIS, The State of Terror. You're on RN. Well, recently, the Liberals celebrated their 75th anniversary. The party has produced two of our nation's great prime ministers, Robert Menzies and John Howard. It's been in federal power for about two-thirds of its existence and it supported consequential policy reforms that have helped make Australia a better place. However, at various stages in its history, the Liberal Party has resembled nothing so much as a pub brawl. It's been written off time and again. But such is the magic of politics, the Liberals all too often bounce back and confound the media experts. Now, to mark the 75th anniversary, let's hear from my two guests. Jared Henderson is a former Chief of Staff to Liberal Leader John Howard and is now Executive Director of the Sydney Institute. He's author of Menzies' Child, the Liberal Party of Australia, 1944 to 1994. Welcome back to RN, Jared. Thank you, Tom. And Troy Bramston, former speechwriter to Labor Leader Kevin Rudd, is a columnist with The Australian. He's also the author of biographies of both Paul Keating and Robert Menzies. Troy, welcome back to the show. Hello, Tom. Now, you recently interviewed John Howard Troy, and he said the essential contribution the Liberal Party has made to Australia is, quote, progress, stability, and laying the foundations of our middle-class character. Is he right? Look, I think he is right, um, but it is a narrative that will be strongly contested by the Labor side of politics. Um, I did do an interview with John Howard. I interviewed the four Liberal Prime Ministers for the 75th anniversary, and Howard was very quick uh, to argue to me that the Liberal Party is the driver of national progress. And he talks about economic progress, social progress, and international progress. So things like the dismantling of the white Australia policy, uh, ending sectarianism with funding for non-government schools in the Menzies era, and of course, opening up some of the new relationships in Asia, such as the Japan Trade Treaty. So it's a bold claim, but it's one that's backed up by facts. Um, and I think Howard also wants the wants the Liberal Party to start claiming its role and its right 
as having um, generated Australia's progress because they haven't often been that good at selling their own history or their contribution. And Jared Howard's other point to Troy was that the Labor Party does a much better job of defending its history, not the Liberal Party. Is that changing? Oh, I think it's changing. It's a lot better than it was 25 years ago when I wrote Menzies' Child, but it's changing gradually. I think uh, the left is better at selling its history. Here's Prime Minister Paul Keating in Parliament in 1992. We had then a flurry of comment by the member for Ben Long about the 50s, what a very good period it was, a golden age. Now this was the golden age when they put the country into neutral and where we very gently ground to a halt in nowhere land. This is the golden age when vast numbers of Australians never got a look in, where migrants were factory fodder, where Aborigines were excluded from the system where we had these xenophobes running around about Britain and bootstraps and that awful cultural cringe under Menzies which held us back for nearly a generation. Prime Minister Paul Keating slamming the Menzies legacy in 1992. Jared Henderson. Well, I like Paul, but that's just, that's just a rant. If, if you go back to the 1950s, they were periods of high growth, of, of low inflation, of very high employment. I mean, a lot of migrants who Paul Keating refers to as fodder, I mean, they had two, some had three jobs. It was a very vibrant time, the 50s, so was the 60s. And you've only got to look back at Australian arts and culture in that time as, as well as what was being um, written. I mean, what was being done, this was a period of great great achievement. And Paul Keating should know that because his father made a fair bit of money in the 1950s uh, in the small business that he ran. It was a very prosperous society. This is just the left-wing agenda. Not that Paul's a real lefty, but this is the left-wing agenda. Comes out of university saying there was stupor in the 50s. There wasn't. I mean, the other attack on Menzies was that Paul Keating's made this criticism. He was a coward in the Second World War. I mean, there's a lot of mythology about all this. And I think the best thing to do is people should just go back and look what happened. And the point is that Menzies won successive elections. So a majority of Australians must have thought he was doing a reasonable job. Moving on, post-Menzies, post-1966, he was, of all people, Troy Bramson, Menzies himself, who told his daughter, Heather, quote, I'm witnessing the destruction of the party. It's a leaderless rabble. And I have great fears for the future. Now, in your book on Robert Menzies, you document how Menzies became so disillusioned with his successes that it's unlikely he voted Liberal in the early to mid-1970s. Yeah, that's right, Tom. Look, he was disappointed with where the Liberal Party went to after he had retired in the summer of 1966. He was disappointed with Harold Holt. Um, He thought that he went from one disaster to another. He thought that John Gorton was ill-disciplined in his public and private life. He thought Billy McMahon was simply a fool. And by the time Billy Sneddon was leading the party, uh, Menzies uh, was voting for the Democratic Labor Party and uh, thought that uh, the party probably should merge with the country party. But he did think that salvation would come with Malcolm Fraser, uh, and he did return to the fold when he became Liberal leader. But yes, he he was, he realised himself, I think, that he was from another age. I mean, it's worth pointing out that Robert Menzies is the last Prime Minister born in the 19th century, um, and he saw Australia changing rapidly. And in the interviews that I discovered and and used in my book, he he recognised that the time was was passing him by. And I think, to go back, just to make a quick comment about your uh, quote from Paul Keating there, look, Robert Menzies' Australia is not the Australia of 
today. I, I see Menzies as being a very significant politician and prime minister with huge achievements, um, but the economy and society was very different then than it is today. Mm. Creature and, of and his culture, wasn't he? It was, and the Liberal Party doesn't subscribe to many of the things that Menzies mm. uh, believed in. You know, he didn't balance the budget very often. Uh, the economy was pretty tightly shackled to regulated labour, product and capital markets. Um, and of course, Menzies supported the White Australia policy. So, and he resisted attempts within his own cabinet to dilute the White Australia policy. So, look, as much as I'd my Robert Menzies, and he's a great political yeah. figure. His Australia is not the Australia of today. But back to the party, though, this is Jared Henderson. Of course it isn't. It was half a century ago, Troy. But you have to remember, I just want to make one clarification. Certainly Menzies voted for the Democratic Labor Party, but he almost certainly gave his preferences to the coalition. He didn't vote Labor at He said stage. in a private lament in 1974, the idiots who now run the Liberal Party will drive me around the bend. Well, he felt that, but that was the time of Billy Snedden's leadership. Once Malcolm Fraser came in, Menzies changed his position again. But another point, I mean, we talk about the White Australia policy. The Labor Party was strongly in support of the White Australia policy, probably more strongly in support of the White Australia Arthur policy. Arthur Corwell. Arthur Corwell, and, and, and that, that went beyond Menzies' time. Okay, but get back to... Hang on, hang on, hang on. let's yep. clarify something. That's actually not true, Jared, because the Labor Party at its 1965 federal conference uh, removed support for the White Australia policy from its platform while the Menzies government still supported it and administered it. Yes. So, so this, this is actually a Liberal Party myth as well. The Labor Party had abandoned the White Australia policy while the Menzies government was still practising it. Hang on, Troy. Labor had a leader in 1965 and 1966. His name was Arthur Corwell. Arthur Corwell was strongly opposed to the White Australia policy. So what I'm interested in, what was the policy of the leadership of the Labor Party? And Arthur Corwell supported the White Australia policy. Well, Arthur Corwell supported the Labor Party's policy, which, no, he which, didn't. which had and removed it by 1965. Well, he didn't. He was a strong Isn't supporter of the Isn't it fair to say that both major parties were creatures of their culture in the 40s and 50s and early to mid-60s they supported white Australia, but, you know, from the mid-60s onwards both parties recognised times were changing. Oh, well, of course, that's true. You're on RN with me, Tom Switzer, and I'm with historians Jared Hennison and Troy Bramson. We're marking the 75th anniversary of the Liberal Party, or as Jared calls it, Menzies' child, and we've been talking about Robert Menzies. He may have fallen out with his Liberal Party. Uh, you know, clearly he was disillusioned, as you document in your book, Troy. But it's a familiar story, isn't it? I mean, you've got former leaders falling out with their party. You think of Gorton, Fraser, Hewson, perhaps Turnbull. Labor is far more loyal... What accounts for the difference, Troy Bramson? Yeah, look, I mean, this is an important point to note because, of course, John Gorton left the Liberal Party and stood against it as an independent Senate candidate in 1975. John Hewson has always been coy when I've asked him whether he is still a member of the Liberal Party or not, but certainly he's a persistent critic. And, of course, Malcolm Fraser had left the Liberal Party as well, I think, in 2009. So none of this is good for the Liberal Party's historical memory, um, but the Labor Party's had a few rats, as they like to call them, whether it's Billy Hughes or, mm. or Mark Latham. So, so there's a bit of that on both sides. But this does diminish the party's historical memory. And in many ways, a lot of these splits have developed over ideology. Um, and this is an important point to make on this anniversary, is the Liberal Party's philosophy is still essentially contested um, by some within the party. And the interviews I did with Malcolm Turnbull, uh, who sees the party as predominantly progressive, um, and Tony Abbott, who sees the party as pre predominantly conservative, um, testifies to that. Um, very interesting that um, Scott Morrison... 
in my interview with him, he he's steering a middle path and he aligns himself with John Howard and with Robert Menzies in saying that one of the key tasks for a Liberal leader is to manage their party effectively. That means managing these ideological differences, always being a common sense and pragmatic party. And that is Scott Morrison's words. And that, I think, is one of the reasons why, at this stage, we can say he's been a successful Prime Minister. But, but that's, I think that's reason, the point is the Liberal Party has been managed better because if you put in John Howard's period as Prime Minister, that's 10 years or thereabouts, and Menzies, when he was a Liberal Party Prime Minister, that's 16 years, that's a quarter of a century. So, I mean, for a quarter of a century, this, the Liberals have had very, very solid leadership. Now, they've had Malcolm Fraser fell out with the Liberal Party after he became uh, after he left Parliament, uh, and there have been problems with others. But if you look at the legacy of, of Menzies and Howard, it's pretty solid. And I think Tony Abbott fits into that as well, as I think Scott Morrison but Do you does. think the Liberals are more likely to eat their own because of these tensions between classical liberalism and conservatism? Oh, I think they basically they manage them, and that's why they've been in government more often. They have some fallouts from time to time, but essentially they've managed it pretty well because they've been much more successful than Labor over the period uh, since the end of the Second World War. Malcolm Turnbull told you, Troy, that the Liberal Party is the custodian of the progressive tradition in this country, not right-wing reactionaries. But isn't the Liberal Party base profoundly more conservative than the likes of Turnbull? I think you're right about that, uh, and this is in fact a strength and a weakness because all of the Prime Ministers said to me that they believe the Liberal Party's membership has drifted further to the right and it's no longer fielding candidates um, with a diversity of life and work experience as it once did. That's a complaint that they all have recognised. And remember, the Liberal Party's membership in the 1950s was over 200,000. Um, today, um, we've got a, a, a much larger population, but it's sitting around 50,000 when you include the LNP in Queensland, and maybe you should do that or not, I'm not sure. But in, in any event, um, this is a factor for all political parties, um, and it's something that um, needs addressing. But, you know, there is this strange thing that Robert Menzies, who I think was in many ways a conservative, he never used the word conservative to describe the Liberal Party. And, and Malcolm Turnbull seized on that idea and said that said that he was he led a progressive and reforming party um, in the Menzies tradition. Now, the point is I, I made earlier, which is this philosophy of the Liberal Party is contested, but they all reach for Menzies. Menzies looms so large that they feel that they can give their own prime ministerships or periods of leadership legitimacy by invoking him to their cause. And it's also why, conversely, Paul Keating tries to delegitimise Menzies because he's so important to the Liberal Party. But, but hasn't every Liberal leader who's won from opposition come from the centre-right tradition? Jared Henderson. Yes, that's true, they have. Um, and, and only four have won a government from opposition, which is Robert Menzies, uh, Malcolm Fraser, John Howard and Tony Abbott. They've all come from the centre-right tradition. Fraser changed later on. But if you just look at what Malcolm Turnbull says about Robert Menzies, about him being a progressive, that's not what people said at the time. I mean, mm. Menzies attempted to ban the Communist Party, he committed, he introduced conscription, he committed forces to, to Vietnam. Defended White Australia. Uh, defended White Australia. I mean, the idea that Menzies was a progressive in his time is nonsense. He, he, he was just a person of his time. And so he he had certain progressive views, he had certain conservative views. That's hardly surprising, but to wrap him up and present him as a, some kind of, 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 of left or centre figure is just, is, just, is just nonsense. Now, Troy, you recently interviewed Scott Morrison and you wrote a scathing column in The Australian about the Labor leader, Anthony Albanese. Peter Van Onselen says that Scott Morrison will definitely win the next election. 
Well, I think Scott Morrison is a very shrewd and clever politician. I think he is steering a middle path through the Liberal Party. He emphasised to me that he doesn't like retrospectives, doesn't like looking in the past. He sees the Liberal Party as common sense party and a pragmatic party. I think that's important. I think Anthony Albanese was the wrong leadership choice for the, for the Labor Party, and I think he's going to find it immensely difficult to dislodge Scott Morrison. Jared Henderson. Well, I thought Scott Morrison would do well in the last election, and he did. I think he, he resonates with Middle Australia. I think, as I recall it, Peter Van Anselen got the last election wrong. He thought that Bill Shorten would win. So I don't make predictions either, but I think under Scott Morrison's leadership, uh, the coalition, that is the Liberal Party plus the Nationals, are well-placed running into the next election, but who knows what might happen in, in between with the economy or some some other matter. But uh, I, th- I think Scott Morrison's in the tradition of the successful Liberal leaders, and I wouldn't put Malcolm Turnbull down as a su- successful Liberal leader because the one election he took the Liberal Party to, he nearly lost it and lost a huge number of seats, 14 to 16, something like that. Jared, Troy, wonderful to have you on the ABC to mark the Liberals' 75th anniversary. Thanks very much. Thank you. Jared Henderson is the author of Menzies' Child, The Liberal Party of Australia, 1944 to 1994. And Troy Bramson is author of Robert Menzies' The Art of Politics. Well, that's the program, and I hope you'll tune in next week because after this week's drama at Westminster, a December 12 election has been called. Now, the Tories are expected to win the election comfortably, regaining its parliamentary majority and finally passing the Brexit deal. What could possibly go wrong? (laughs) Tune in next week to find out. Now, before then, why don't you download the ABC Listen app where you can hear any of our last episodes of Between the Lines. I'm Tom Switzer. Look forward to your company next week.